0: If you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to look this morning. Paul is beginning here a new paragraph, a new section. Uh, the paragraph is verses 15 to 21. The overarching section is chapter 5, verse 15, to chapter 6, verse 9. It's a highly structured, tightly knit unit, both in its structure and in its teaching. Commentators call verses 15 to 21 a summary climax basically of the entirety of chapters four to six. If you realize what we've been talking about, remember we said chapters one to three, was Paul rooting the people of God in the grace of God, in the gospel, the glories of the eternal plan of God and his saving grace, his saving plan, rooting them in that. So that chapters four to six, it's now about living out of that, being renewed in that. So thus we've titled a whole series, Rooted and Renewed. And In this, we're looking at kind of this summary climax, chapter 5, beginning at verse 15. So let me read down to verse 21. And he says, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. If you notice something, Paul's once again returning to that key word, that key concept that he has used throughout these chapters, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, this whole concept of walking of living consistently with the gospel. It's not walking and living to earn up, to try to merit something, but it's you're already God's beloved, you're God's child. This is who you are. Now, walk and live a life consistent. Don't try to become something. You're already something. You're a child of God. You're adopted into the family. You're justified. You're chosen. But now live out of that. And the key word he's used to describe that is this language of walking. So let me just remind you of a few instances. He began the section, chapter 4, verse 1. He said, walk in a manner worthy, meaning consistent with the calling to which you've been called. Chapter 4, verse 17, he said, walk your lifestyles to be contrasted. So your your attitudes, your thoughts, your entire lifestyle is contrasted with those who are outside the kingdom. Chapter 5, verse 2, he talked about our walk is to be fueled and empowered, characterized by love. He basically said what characterizes someone who's imitating God and following God is they live a life of love. So he said, walk in love as God's beloved children. Then in chapter 5, verse 8, he says, you are light in the Lord. Now walk, live as children of the light, penetrating the darkness, being sent into the darkness. And finally here in chapter 5, verse 15, you have the final occurrence, the last instance of this key word walk, where he's spelling out the implications of the eternal plan of God that plan to reconcile a single family to himself, make them his new humanity, to fill the earth with his glory. He says, you are now God's new human beings. And now I want you to walk consistently with that. So what is he doing? He's bringing to a head. He's bringing to a crescendo, a summary climax, what he has said before concerning the implications of being God's agent in the world. And it's also kind of a bridge passage because he's heading into this, basically going to look very specifically at some key relationships. Marriage, husbands and wives in chapter 5, verse 22. Children and parents, the family unit, the family life in chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. And then finally, in that culture, slaves and masters, but for us, work relationships, employers, employees, in chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. He begins the section with a general heading. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk. And he follows that with three contrasts. Not as unwise, but as wise. Not as foolish, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And not drunk, but being filled with the Spirit. When we ask the question, what is wisdom? Al read from the Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When we look at what are the characteristics of wise people? And a wise community. When we look at what the new humanity... Remember I said, what are, what are we rooted in? The fact that we are now God's temple. God's new humanity. And we're to live out of that and live in wisdom. We're going to see that there's three characteristics of wisdom from this text. Wise people or a wise community. Wise church know the time. Wise people understand the purpose. And wise people have the right fullness Know the time, understand the purpose, and have the right fullness. Look with me at verses 15 and 16. Verse 15 begins, I said, with that general heading, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. And the first characteristic of that wisdom is making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now let me begin with the general heading. When he says, look carefully how you walk, watch carefully carefully, Commentators say that that phrase signifies something that is done very accurately, precisely, using close attention, giving close attention to the matter. Now, when he says make the best use of the time, some translations call it buying back the time or redeeming the time. The idea that he has in terms of here is he's not saying that means you work all the time. He's not not advocating being a workaholic but here's what he's saying, because remember, this is wisdom, skill and living. He's saying be very intentional about how you live. Do everything intentionally. Work intentionally. Rest intentionally. Use your recreation life intentionally. Live intentionally. Now, Paul is employing here something that his first-century readers and hearers would be quite familiar with. He is alluding and he's drawing back to the wisdom tradition, the language of wisdom that is predominant in the Old Testament, particularly in the Proverbs. That's why I had Al read from the Proverbs. And commentators note that the wisdom tradition has not been absent overall from the letter to the Ephesians. In fact, one commentator, his name's Peter O'Brien, notes that there's been three particular instances instances so far in the letter where Paul is drawn from this tradition. So first of all, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul's writing that it was God's desire that we should understand his saving plan. So what does he say in verse 8? He says that according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us with all wisdom and insight. Now listen to that. He's saying he has lavished the riches of his grace upon us. What does it mean to lavish something? That is not to sprinkle lightly, is it? Lavishing is kind of like what I do with my dressing on salads and stuff. I lavish things, right? Or I, Some of you do that too, okay? Rather than sprinkle. Listen to what Paul is saying there. This is the importance of wisdom. He's saying that he has revealed the divine mystery, the mystery that he says that God intends to sum up the entire universe in Christ, making Christ the center of it all, the things in heaven and the things in earth. And that in order for us to understand this, we need wisdom. So he's lavished the riches of his grace in all wisdom. In other words, being very intentional on God's part. God does nothing by accident. God was intentional on lavishing his grace upon us in wisdom and insight. Next, you have an instance out of Paul's prayer life. Chapter 1, verse 17, Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why? For what purpose? To more fully understand the mystery and live in light of it. To have the eyes of your heart enlightened, to know the hope to which you have been called. Now, this is interesting, because didn't we just say that Paul has already given us the knowledge of this mystery? That's why he's lavished grace, the riches of his grace upon us, but now he's asking God to give his people the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of revelation, that they may grasp the full weight, the full orb, the full significance of this. Do you know what that means practically for us, for our day-to-day life? That means we need the divine wisdom poured into us in order to understand the riches of salvation. We think we get grace. We think grace is the beginning of the Christian life, And Paul is saying, no, I'm praying that the spirit of wisdom would be poured into you, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened and know that you would understand divine grace, understand this hope. You don't even understand the grace without divine wisdom. And lastly, chapter 3, verse 10, Paul states that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places And here again, Peter O'Brien writes that this wisdom had to do with his richly diverse ways of working that led to a multiracial, multicultural community being united as a single family, united as fellow members of the body of Christ, and that this divine wisdom is integrally related to the mystery, that wisdom and the mystery of salvation go hand in hand. They go together. And that in the Old Testament, that this language, this tradition is especially seen in books like Proverbs, that according to the Proverbs, the way of wisdom that members of the covenant community are to walk requires insight and understanding into God's will. That means it involves not only or not simply an intellectual knowledge, though that is certainly necessary and included, but it's also a skill in living, an ethical walk. To be wise in this sense is to demonstrate a perception and an understanding that works itself out in practice. And the first way it works itself out in practice, so we're talking about divine wisdom poured into us through the word of God that then leads to right conduct. And the first way Paul says that this works itself out in practice is making the best use of our time. Being intentional, knowing the time. And again, that phrase that some English translations use redeem the time or buy back the time, is again rooted in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 8, it's in relation to the Chaldeans. King Nebuchadnezzar were having dreams, and these dreams were bothering him. They were keeping him up at night. So what did he do? He called in all his magicians, all his enchanters, all his quote-unquote wise people to come in and interpret the dreams, but only they couldn't interpret the dreams. So... That would put them under a sentence of death because they couldn't do the king's bidding. And so the text says that they were unable to tell him his dream, and so they attempted to gain time before the king, in this case Nebuchadnezzar, put them to death. And then one commentator made the connection. He said, if the meaning is the same in Ephesians, the force is that believers know they are living in the last days, And so they should try to gain time in order to walk in a manner that's intentional about pleasing the Lord. We must, in other words, know the time. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean we need to know it's quarter to 12? Finish it up, Jeff? That's not what we mean by knowing time. It means know the epoch. Know the era. Know the historical age in which we live. Now, we have to realize something. In biblical thought... Paul distinguishes between two times, two ages. He calls one this present age and one the age to come. Read his letters and you'll hear him making reference to the present age and the age to come. And often he will distinguish, he says, this present age is this present evil age. Here he says, because you know the days are evil. He's referring to the age in which we live is evil. To the Galatians, in Galatians 1 verse 4, he says, you are rescued from this present evil age. So it's the age characterized by evil, while the age to come is the age characterized by the reign of Christ, the kingdom of God, the completed king. But here's the thing. In Pauline thought, these two ages overlap each other. That's because what is Paul doing? Paul is applying the achievement of Jesus, the work of Jesus to the church. And with the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus and the giving of the Spirit, the age to come has been launched. It's begun. It isn't completed yet, but it's come. So you've got these two ages existing simultaneously and overlapping. So believers live in this age with the power and according to the lifestyle and the values of the age to come. And Paul's instruction, what he's describing skill and living and wisdom is that in the power of the spirit and know where this passage is going. He's going from time to the Lord's will to what's the last point being filled with the spirit. Everything's building up on e- with each other. And what he's basically saying is in the power of the Spirit, the church is now implementing the age to come in the last days, in the presence of this evil age, everything we do. And this doesn't mean an extraordinary everything. In the ordinary, he's going to be speaking later on about your marriage relationships, your family relationships, your work relationships, in the ordinary living of day-to-day life. You live in the present evil age with the lifestyle, the attitudes, the presence, and the values, and the power. I'm giving you kind of a sneak peek ahead of being filled with the Spirit. The power of the age to come. Not as unwise, but as wise. This is the first point. Believers, do you know the time? And therefore, is there a sense of urgency not in the sense of frenzy, but in the sense of intentionality, making the most of every opportunity with your family, with your children. Or are you haphazard about how you live? Are you careless about how you live? And we're not talking about never resting. I'm not telling you don't enjoy a great Mother's Day dinner. Don't mishear me. Enjoy your Mother's Day dinner. But be intentional about everything you do, because you live in this age with the power and you're an agent of the age to come. Do you see the significance of that? And that leads to the second point. Wise people not only know the time, but they understand the purpose. And the purpose is described in verse 17 as, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Wise people understand the purpose of the will of the Lord. And again, you need to see the wisdom literature, the traditions of the Old Testament, particularly the Proverbs. Commentators again state that this describes the fool. The contrast is between the fool and the wise person. And the fool who is careless, lacks understanding, and despises wisdom, despises that learning and instruction. He refuses to acknowledge dependence on God and acts foolishly and presumptuously. This person lacks discernment in practical living. Note a couple things about the Lord's will. First, we're told to understand the Lord's will, which means there needs to be some intentionality about our thinking. You need to know the scriptures to study the Lord's will. Paul is exhorting his readers to lay hold of and understand the implications of the redemptive plan, the grace of Christ to understand its implications for day-to-day living. And again, commentators are helpful when they're, we're reminded the cognitive dimension, understanding, is clearly included. But we need to recognize in true Hebraic fashion that believers' understanding of God's gracious saving plan is always to lead to right conduct. What did Paul write in Ephesians 1 four? He has chosen us to be holy and blameless in his sight. And remember that Jesus said to his disciples, these words, this verse always amazes me. Jesus said to his disciples right after his interaction with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, he says that his very sustenance, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And that when Jesus was facing the greatest trial of his life, about to go to the cross, and he's praying in the garden of Gethsemane, and he prays, Father, may this cup pass from me. In other words, he's sharing the weakness. He's sharing the humanity of his soul. He says, I would love for this cup to be taken from me, but what does he say? I'm not going to abandon the divine plan. Yet not my will, but your will be done. And how does he teach us to pray? When he says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's the center of that prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What, just in the future? No. Colonize the earth. May the will of God, the agenda of God the purposes of God, the values of God be done in action, in day-to-day life, in how you conduct yourself, in how you live, on earth, because you're an agent of the kingdom of God, on earth as it is in heaven. Do you know how practical this is for our application, how vital this is for us to understand? Because so often, when when we hear, when we read, when you hear the will of God, what's the first thing our minds jump to? In our contemporary culture, oftentimes it's matters of personal guidance. Will of God. Oh, Who should I marry? What job should I take? What school should I go to? Where should I work? Now, friends, again, don't misunderstand me. Is God concerned with the details of our life? Absolutely. Should you pray for guidance in the personal matters of your life? Absolutely. God is your heavenly father, and he cares about every every one of the hairs of your head are numbered, so he cares you. But this is crucial. This is one of those famous Pauline both-ands and not either oars, because in Paul's letter, and specifically here, the focus is different without replacing the personal dimension. Again, Peter O'Brien writes, he says, the will of God is closely related to... Even identified with God's gracious saving plan, and as a significant element of that saving plan, it is the formation of a people into the likeness of Christ, who will be holy and blameless in His sight. The contemporary preoccupation with personal guidance is wrongly directed if it is not understood, first of all, within this framework the framework of God's saving purposes to make you like Jesus, to conform you to the image of God who is Jesus Christ. In other words, God's purpose and the details of his concern. Is he concerned with your personal life? Yes. But his first and foremost concern and what he's using every one of your circumstances for is to conform you to the image of Christ. He is making you like Jesus so that you mirror the glory of the Lord so that the earth is full of his glory, the embodiment of Jesus, which is the church. What does it mean that we're the body of Christ? So seek personal guidance. Absolutely. Pray without ceasing, but realize that that the first piece of guidance that God is giving you is that his saving plan is to conform you to the image of Christ, that his saving plan is to renew you, that his saving plan is to make you more and more holy, that that's what he is concerned with. Which leads us to the last question, how do we become that kind of person? How do we become the person that is intentional about our use of time, making the most of every opportunity? And how do we become that kind of person who understands what the will of the Lord is and who is more concerned with becoming like Christ than even our personal circumstances and sees our personal circumstances within the rubric of because what did what did Paul write in Romans eight twenty eight 28 says all things are working together for good for those God has chosen. He's chosen and predestined to be what? conformed to the image of Christ. So the good God is working out in your life is your holiness. Do you understand what the will of the Lord is? And how do we grow? How do we cultivate a mindset that becomes that type of person? You have to have the right fullness. Look with me at what verse 18 says. And all of this is building. And I'm going to be brief here because I'm coming back to this when I get back. It says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, let me tell you what Paul is going after. He's not going after alcohol use in general. Read the rest of his letters. He tells Timothy, have a little wine. It'll cure your stomach ailment. It'll help you. But he's going after something that's actually much more difficult, deeper. He's going after the heart because he's going after the issue of what is your fullness, what is is it in your life that controls you? What is it that governs you? He uses the example of alcohol because it's a very common example. But he's going after, in one sense, he's saying we're all addicted to something. You're either addicted to the spirit. And we're going to see what the spirit's addicted to in just a second. He says, be filled with the spirit. Be addicted. Be obsessed. What is fullness? Being filled with something to overflowing with the Spirit. And don't be addicted to anything else. Don't let anything else, even good things. In other words, Jeff, you love sports. Don't don't be addicted to sports. Don't let sports govern you. We may love our jobs. Don't let your job govern you. You're called to love your family. Don't let your family govern you. What is your fullness? And we have to ask the question is, what does it mean to be addicted to the Spirit? What is the Spirit interested in? It's interesting we have to, again, go back to the teachings of Jesus because there's a section of John's Gospel, chapters 14 to 16, known as the Upper Room Discourse, where Jesus is teaching, discipling his disciples, his followers, before he faces the cross. And much of his teaching is focusing on the role of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit will implement through the church the achievement of Christ And we read the following verse in this overall context, John chapter 16, verse 14, where Jesus is speaking of the Spirit, and he says, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And I really believe there that Jesus is talking about he's whittling down to the core the essence of the Spirit's work. But I want you to think about this for a second. I want to pose a question to you, and that is, if the Holy Spirit left your life today would you even notice? I didn't say if God left your life, and I didn't say if Jesus left your life. Although a case can make, be made, if the Spirit leaves your life, Jesus has left your life, and so has God. But I'm challenging how much we even notice the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. If the Spirit left your life, would it make any difference in the way that you responded to things, in the way you think, in the way you feel, in the way you live? Do you understand the work of the Holy Spirit? Listen to the experience of someone who I happen to think is the greatest intellect in American history. I also think he's one of the greatest theologians in American history, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards writes the following He says, I used to spend abundance of time in walking alone in the woods and solitary places for meditation, soliloquy, and prayer. I had then, at other times, the greatest delight in the Holy Scriptures. Now, let me stop there. It's a longer quote, and I'm going to read Edwards in talking about the Spirit. Never divorces the Spirit from the Word. Everything he is now about to speak, he is speaking about how the Holy Spirit applies the Scriptures. But I want you to listen to how Edwards describes the Holy Spirit applying the Scriptures. He says, I had the greatest delight in the Scriptures of any book whatsoever. Oftentimes, in reading it, every word seemed to touch my heart. I felt a harmony between something in my heart and those sweet, powerful words. I seemed often to see so much light exhibited by every sentence and such a refreshing, ravishing food communicated that I could not get alone in reading. I used oftentimes to dwell long upon one sentence to see the wonders contained in it and yet almost every sentence seemed to be full of wonders. I found from time to time an inward sweetness that used, as it were, to carry me away in my contemplations in a calm, sweet abstraction of soul from all the concerns of this world and fixed ideas and imaginations of being alone, sweetly conversing with Christ, wrapped and swallowed up in God. The sense I had of divine things would often, of a sudden, as it were, kindle up a sweet burning in my heart, an ardor of my soul that I, not, that I know not how to express. Friends, this is not mere emotionalism. His mind, his heart, his affections, his will, his volition, his being, everything that wraps up who he is as Jonathan Edwards is enraptured with the presence and the person of God. And is that not this what it means to be in love? Yeah. He's in love with God because the Holy Spirit is is glorifying Jesus, taking from what is Jesus, what Jesus accomplished, what Jesus achieved, and he's declaring it. He's mediating it. He's furthering the fellowship of it to your very life. And that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And that's what we are commanded to do. This is not an option. Verse 18 is not, oh, by the way, if you feel like it, once a year, pray for revival and seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying this is living out of the gospel. And I love how PCA pastor Scotty Smith put it. He says, are you bored with the gospel? He says, then you're probably not far from being bored with oxygen, your own skin, and gravity. The spirit is obsessed with Jesus. And by the way, who sent Jesus? God the Father. So this is a Trinitarian salvation. That basically is saying he's taking from what he accomplished. This is the essence of what Jesus did. The summary of what he brought it to. Jesus accomplished everything necessary for bringing you and reconciling you to God. And the Spirit is furthering that work in your life. Wise people not only know the time, they understand the purpose. And they have the right fullness. Friends, what is your fullness? What preoccupies, what occupies your life? What occupies mostly your thoughts? What is the, re- this is actually a very difficult passage. Moms, I'm sorry for preaching a difficult passage on Mother's Day. But this is a challenging passage to say that what fills you? In other words, what satisfies you? Not I believe in God and he's on the periphery of my life. But what is it that fills me up, that satisfies me so that it grips my soul? the only thing that will change you. Getting back to our earlier question, if the Spirit left your life today, would you notice? Because it would make all the difference in the world, because no Spirit, no Christ. No Christ, no God. No Spirit, no God. Wise people, a wise church, a wise community know the time, and therefore are intentional, because they know they're living in this age, overlapping, With the power of the age to come. You don't belong to this age. You belong to the age to come. That's your glory. And therefore, we understand what the Lord's will is. And we seek that will. And we're seeking to be conformed to that will. And how? Through the fullness of the Spirit, which obsesses with Jesus Christ, the fullness of God. What did Paul say? May I never boast, which he meant, may I never obsess. With anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let's pray. Lord God, may we be a people full of the glory of the triune God. May we never get enough of you. Because that's what the Spirit is given to us for. And that's what when Paul says, be filled, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. He's saying, being governed be controlled, be addicted. Holy Spirit, forgive us if we only make you an abstraction in our life. Forgive us for this. Lord, I pray that we would immerse ourselves in your word where the spirit is alive and active and speaking and applying. We say and we quote, your word is sharper than any double-edged sword, alive and living. May it be living in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.